And the rest of you, we are in Ezekiel 36, and I'd like for you to begin looking with me at verse 26 and really consider what the prophet has to say to us this morning. He says, speaking for God, speaking directly for Father God, he says this, and I will give you a new heart. Now, some of you, I think maybe have not yet discovered the fact that you need a new heart. But every one of us in here was born into this life in desperate need of a heart transplant. And you didn't even know it. So let me just remind you of what God promises in his word one more time. Would you allow that? God says through his prophet Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Now watch this. Not so you can get a tickle. Not so you can run up and down the aisles. Not so you can do any kind of fantastical thing. But listen, I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Not on your own strength. Not out of the reservoir of commitment of your own heart, but from a new heart, a new spirit. His spirit, his very own spirit will be upon you, causing you, hallelujah, to walk in his statue, statute and obey his rules. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. You may be seated. So at the conclusion of today's message, we are going to be four-fifths through our series that we've entitled proof and it's an acronym an acronym rather of um, of God's working of grace in five different aspects of the working of his grace in his people um uh, proof of course being P R O F P several weeks ago uh, pastor David told us about God's planned grace and this means that before time began, God mapped out our salvation and his plan of salvation from first to last, leaving absolutely not a single thing to chance. And he adopted particular people for his own children. The following week, I spoke to you about our resurrecting grace, God's resurrecting grace. And this is the truth that all of us, with no exceptions, were born spiritually Dead. We were DOA, dead on arrival. None of us will ever choose because of this, the, by the exercise of our will, God will never say, you know, of all the selections available to me, I choose God. Not one of us will ever do that. So what has to happen is God enables us to respond to His grace and, and He gives us life through the power of the resurrection of Jesus, resurrecting us as well. Two weeks ago, I shared with you about God's outrageous grace. And this is to say that God has chosen people to be saved only on the basis of his sovereign will alone. He didn't base his choice on anything you were, the quality of a saint or a sinner that you were. He didn't base it on anything that you did or would do. He based it solely on the fact that he loved you and chose you and decided to to pour out his mercy upon you. So today we're going to add to that equation God's overcoming grace. 
And overcoming grace is how God works in our lives to transform our, our naturally inbred rebellion against Him into unconditional surrender so that we can freely repent and recognize Christ as the only true and risen King. So the idea of overcoming grace is really a way to state the miracle. It's a way to to present the miracle of how God's Spirit comes to those, as I said earlier, who are spiritually dead, wanting absolutely nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with His kingdom, and and He works in them so that they'll abandon their self-idolatry. Now, we've talked about this before, in fact, many times before, But how many of you know that all of us are inherently idol worshipers? All of us. There's no exceptions. From every child to every aged person, we're all idol worshipers. But the thing of it is, our idols are not figurines of gold or stone or silver or wood. Our, 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 Our favorite preferred idol is the one we see in the mirror every single day. I love worshiping that idol. To me, it's the best looking idol. To me, it's the smartest idol. To me, it's the, it's the one who deserves the most worship and praise. And so I freely surrender my devotion to that idol that I see in the mirror every day. Am I alone? Am I, am I the only one? But God works in us through His overcoming grace to overcome that self-idolatry and and all the worldly desires that are connected with it. And He works in us also so that we won't just not desire those things, but so that we will desire to be reconciled to God. Just like at the beginning of creation, that we reconciled to God longing for holiness and increasingly surrendering to Christ and His way. The Holy Spirit does not accomplish this miracle by just revving up his engine and running roughshod over your will. He doesn't do that like saying, oh, yes, you will serve me and, and, and firing up the guns. No, what he does, he doesn't twist our arm and behind our back and, oh, uncle, uncle, I'll serve you, I'll serve you. It's not how it works. What he does is he enables our spiritual senses Something that we weren't able to do when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He enables our spiritual senses to perceive the sweetness of His grace. The sweetness, the beauty of His merciful forgiveness. He gives us a foretaste of His glory. And over time, it just begins to work in us to destroy our appetites for anything else. Anything lesser. And can I let you in on a little secret? Everything is lesser. It's all lesser. Everything is, 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 is far in, inferior to the glory, the beauty, the, the mercy, the forgiveness, and the, and the absolute person of Jesus Christ. God never violates our wills, but He powerfully and irresistibly allures us, woos us, entices us with His goodness by His Spirit. What we could never do before, we're finally able to see past our bitterness and our corruption to where we desire His sweetness. Over the years, theologians have called this principle of grace irresistible grace. But like most theological terms or many theological terms, 
that really can be a little misleading to say irresistible grace. Why? Well, because as you are well aware, people can and often do resist the grace of Jesus. Amen? Now, be honest. Haven't you known someone who absolutely dug their heels in, having heard the gospel over and over and over again, but dug their heels in and absolutely refused to repent and believe in Christ till the very day of their death? Anybody ever seen that? It's sad, but I've seen it many times. So it may be helpful if we're going to try to figure out what we mean by overcoming grace or irresistible grace. It it, it may be helpful to understand that there are two distinct calls of God that we can see in Scripture and how God calls people to repentance. The first is what we would call a general outward call. It's the call that goes out to everyone. For example... Jesus began his ministry in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, by saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Makes it, And he makes this imperative, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, my question to you, congregation, is to whom did Jesus Christ direct that call? Who, who specifically? All of us. Everyone. Everyone on the face of the planet, everyone who heard him back then in the first century, everyone who reads those words now, when uh, the, the, when he when they read that, they are immediately confronted with a call to repent and believe the gospel. Everyone, right? So here's where it gets a little sticky. Jesus gave a command. Did everyone repent? Of course not. And if I can let you in on secret number two, they still don't. I've talked to many, many people all over the place that say, and I'll, 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 as simply as I can, present the wonders of the gospel and say, repent and believe the gospel. And they say, "Mm, no thanks. Some of the people in the first century, in fact, that he called to repent and believe the gospel would eventually be the ones shaking their fists in the air and demanding that Rome crucify Jesus. The farthest thing from repent, repent and believe the gospel you can get, right? But, but here's, you gotta keep following this thread. So Jesus calls, everybody doesn't answer, they still don't. Let me ask you this, then, did Jesus Christ fail In his call to repentance. Well, no one's going to say he did. Because he's Jesus, right? He does all things well, the scripture says. So if grace overcomes, if grace is truly irresistible, why would they fail to respond? I think we find a partial answer to that question. This is... This is one of the mysteries of God, so I don't want to make it simplistically answered. But I think a partial answer to that question, why didn't they respond, is found in King David's own prayer of repentance. You'll remember he was caught in the dual sins of adultery. And if that wasn't enough, he topped it off with the cherry of murder. And and so he was very guilty. So Psalm 51 reports for us this beautiful prayer of repentance where he just lays his soul bare to God. And this is what we read in verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, 
said, God, this didn't take me by surprise. I know how bad I am. And my sin is ever before me. Before you and you only have I sinned and done evil what is evil in your sight. Now watch this. Pay careful attention more than any other in this scripture to the next two words. God, you know my sin. It's ever before me. There's no mystery about my sin. But why? So that. Watch this. So that. You may be justified, you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now watch. So that, so that one purpose served by our sin and our stubbornness and our rebellion and our our, our resistance to this general outward call of God is to prove, listen to me, You think you're rebelling against God, shaking your fist, and you're outside of the sovereignty of God? Guess again. Because your sin is proving the holiness and the justice and the blamelessness of God in all of his righteous judgments. Oh, God can't touch me. No, ain't nobody judge me but God. All that, all that foolishness. Guess what? You are playing right into the truth that God is holy. You're playing right into the truth that when God pours out his righteous judgment, he will be right in doing so. When people reject God's general outward call to repentance, they're building a case against themselves and in favor of God that they are truly rebels, truly criminals, deserving of every just punishment that awaits them for their cosmic treason. And if you are right now resisting the general call of Jesus to repent, that should make you shudder in your boots. Because a day is coming, a day is coming when you will stand before the bar of God and he will be proved absolutely right and absolutely just and absolutely blameless in whatever judgment he hands down to you. The contrast between the general outward call and what we're going to talk about today, which is the particular inward call, is best seen probably more than anywhere else in the scripture in Matthew 22, verse 14. And it says this, and many of you are familiar with it, for many are what? But few are what? Chosen. Many are called... But few are chosen. Many are called speaks of that general call to repent and believe that goes out to the whole world. The whole world, Paul says in, uh, in, in, in the book of Romans, he says that the whole world has evidence that God is and that he demands better than what he's getting. The whole world knows it. No one goes, what, what? I'm a sinner? Why do you think pagans sacrifice pigs and goats and whatever else to try to appease their sinfulness? Because we all know it. Every pagan can look into the stars. In fact, every atheist can look into the stars, see the wonder of the Grand Canyon, the beauty of a flower, and know that there is a God. And there's not one of them that's deceived by, the, by that fact except by themselves. Many are called. It's a general call that to repent that goes out to the whole world. But with that comma, but few are what? Few are chosen. 
It speaks to the fact that a much, much, much smaller percentage will receive Christ's effectual, irresistible, particular call to salvation and respond in saving faith. Christ's clear statement of his saving intent is unavoidable. It's evident by this passage. Listen, I want you to get this because we've been hammering this home pretty hard. The Bible does not say many are called, but few choose. Is that what you read? Many are called. The evangelist gets up there and he preaches hell and preaches it hot. And many are called in that moment, but only a few slip up their hand, bow their heads, close their eyes and pray the prayer with the evangelist. That is not what the scripture says. This is what we read. He does not say if you choose placing ultimate power with those who were to be the recipients of grace, but he says few are chosen. Indicating that saving power, watch this, saving power is in the hands of the Lord alone. Psalms 3.8 celebrates this fact. I love this passage. It says salvation belongs to who? The salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is kind of like, you know, in many of our minds, he's kind of like, the guy after a, a big storm who's wandering around with a flashlight looking through piles of debris seeing if he can find anybody who who needs to be saved. No, 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 no. Jesus is more like, you guys know the, the, the motto of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Mounties? Jesus always gets his man. Jesus always gets his man, his woman, his boy, his girl. He never comes home empty-handed ever. He, what he chooses to acquire, he never fails to acquire. One of the greatest examples of overcoming grace, this principle, is found in Acts 7 through 9. So together, let's take a look at that. Everybody grab your Bibles again and go to Acts chapter 7. Now we're going to look at a passage in 7, passage in 8, passage in 9. But we're going to start, if you're using one of the Bibles that provided for you, in page 534. Let me set this up for you. So Stephen is a man chosen by the the apostles. He's full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says. Uh, The Bible says that that he even had just, he's so full of God that he had the appearance of Jesus. He He just looked like he was full of God. And so he begins to preach and perform miracles and, and it just drives the Jewish powers absolutely bananas. And so they, they, they kind of stir up this false accusation that he's preaching blasphemies against Moses, against the, the temple. And that is just, you know, no, you know, no good for the uh, powers that be. And so they, they arrest him and, 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 in chapter six and chapter seven and, and in chapter seven, Stephen gives this incredible sermon to the Jewish authorities. And his, his sermon basically breaks down to this. It's a history lesson. And he says, he goes through all their long history of the Old Testament. And he says, God came to you here. He rejected him. God came to you here. You rejected him. God came to you here. You rejected him. And God came to you here. And you rejected him. 
And he ends that sermon not with a call, an altar call to come and pray a prayer with him with every head bowed and every eye closed. He ends an altar call like I've wanted to end many of them by saying, you stiff-necked and rebellious generation. How often will you continue to resist the Holy Spirit? And that's his message. Well, as you can imagine, that did not go over hunky-dory, to say the least. So here's where we're going to pick up. Verse 58, way down at the end of the chapter. Look at that. And, And read these words. Verse 58. And then they cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him. That means they literally picked up rocks and threw them at him until he died. And the witnesses, now watch, I want you to pay careful attention to this. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is watching this catastrophe, this atrocity. And he says, hey guys, you you can't throw good with your coats. So let me hold your coats while you throw rocks at this man and kill him. And as they, as they were, verse 59, as they, as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, who is he modeling there? Jesus on the cross, father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that means he expired, he died. So go to verse chapter 8, just the first verse there. I want you to see this. And Saul, this young man holding the coats, approved of his execution. He gave it two thumbs up. Good idea. Now go to, go to chapter 9, page 535, if you're using one of those Bibles. In verse 1, we read this. So all this has transpired. The church has been scattered because of the uh, the persecution for uh, of, uh, of the church and, and the stoning of Stephen. And the gospel is going out all over the region. And verse 9, we read this. But Saul, this young man, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any were found belonging to the way, that means Christianity, the church, if anyone found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem so that they can do exactly to them what they did to Stephen. So he's saying, okay, we, we, uh, fired up the fires. They, they turned up the heat and now the church is scattered. Let's go get them. They can't hide out anywhere. We're going to go find them and we're going to bring them back here and they're going to suffer the same fate as Stephen. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, on his way, that's really important, his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone round about him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, now watch, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, without taking the time to read the whole story, I hope you'll do it at home. The story goes on to tell us that when Saul gets to Damascus, God sends a believer named Ananias to pray for him to receive his sight. But before he goes, Ananias hesitates. He says, God, I don't want to call you on this, but this fellow Saul doesn't have the best reputation among people that believe what I believe. And so there's got to be somebody else, somebody bigger, tougher, stronger, maybe with some military experience that you can go do your work right now. But God says this to Ananias. Now watch. I know I keep telling you, watch. I I want you to get this stuff. I don't want to go over your heads. Listen, watch, pay attention. God says this to Ananias, go, for he saw the persecutor, the murderer, the guy with arrest warrants, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, after Ananias prays, Saul, just like all of the good guys, have you learned yet there's not really any good guys? Have you? But Saul, after Ananias prays for him, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's baptized. And he immediately, the Bible uses that word, immediately, straight away, he goes into the synagogue. Now, he'd gone there originally to arrest him, lock him up, but he goes into the synagogue, and what does he do? It says that's where he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And he didn't do that after four years of seminary. Amen. He didn't do that after the, the, the apostles gave him one of these. <laughs> he immediately, after being transformed, after being called by Jesus gets up and says, guys, you got to hear this. Oops. I was a little bit off on this one. Jesus, Jesus is the son of God. Later we read that in that same synagogue where he originally intended to round people up, arrest and persecute the believers. What was he doing? Listen, this is, this is even better. It says that he was proving to those stiff necked, hard hearted Jews that Jesus was the Christ. You guys are looking for the Messiah. He's here. I saw him. Knocked me down. Blinded me. He's here. He's alive. And he is the Messiah. Talk about a change of heart. Sometime after that, that'd be cool if that was the end of the story. Oh, it's not. Sometime after that, this man Saul was actually added to the number of the apostles. He, he started to be known as Paul and he took three missionary journeys and he planted churches and raised up elders and leaders everywhere he went. And, and in his spare time, he wrote most of the New Testament. The trajectory of his life dramatically changed. Why? Overcoming grace. He was still breathing out threats against the church. Overcoming grace overruled him. Now, aren't you glad that Jesus showed up that day on the road to Damascus, gently tapped Saul on the shoulder and asked him, Saul, would you like to invite me into your heart? 
Aren't you glad? Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Isn't that what happened? Isn't that exactly what happened? Of course not. You just read it yourself. Jesus literally knocked him down. He knocked him down. And and, and more than that, he demanded to know, as a king would, as a judge would, he demanded to know why Saul was persecuting him. Not the church. Him. It's his body. And Jesus, that next time, this guy who had determined to go and lock up Christians, this guy that, that had nothing to do or desired to have anything to do with the kingdom of God, Jesus told him what to do. And he obeyed. He said, Jesus, you can't tell me to do that. I've got letters from the high priest. Jesus would have said, I am the high priest. Persecutor obeyed. I know I'm not the only one that could say this in this group of people, but my story is so similar. It's ridiculous. I was a 16-year-old pain in the butt who wanted nothing to do with God. I was completely uh, in love with my completely different agenda. Anybody have an agenda that didn't include Jesus at one point in your life? Y'all did. I had a completely different agenda. I saw God and His commands as nothing more than an obstacle to my superior plans for my life. I had it all figured out. I was well on my my way, warrants in hand, on the road to Damascus. But one night, (laughs) at a Christian concert, God helped me that I didn't even want to be with at, God completely just out of nowhere, arrested me. He completely, I had the arrest warrants and he slapped the cuffs on me. He, he didn't even have the, the courtesy to ask my permission. And I was powerless, completely powerless to decline when the Lord Jesus Christ looked at me at 16 years old, ready to end it all and said, you're mine. I was powerless. I was laying flat on my back on the road to Damascus. (laughs) What was I going to do? That night, the one who so very previously had been completely repulsive to me became infinitely sweet. He filled me with his Holy Spirit, and I did not want to leave that concert hall without him. Good news, I didn't. And I haven't been able to shake him ever since. I've tried a couple times. But man, that guy is hot on my heels everywhere I go. I didn't ever want to be without him again. I never have been without him. Everything's been uh, uh, roses since then. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) I've had ups. I've had downs, I've had success, I've had failure, I've had victory, I've had defeat. But one thing has not changed, Jesus Christ has never left my side. He has never stopped progressively 
Day to day, moment by moment, instant by instant, he's never stopped progressively capturing my heart. And I can look you in the eyes and tell you I truly love him more every single day. And that's the beauty of overcoming grace. It doesn't stop once we get in the door of salvation. As believers, we're all in this ongoing process of being made to desire His ways, His truth, more and more through the continuing outpouring of His overcoming grace. And we call that sanctification. The longer I walk with Him, the more pleasing He becomes. And the more and more I still see that remaining sin in me as rancid, as polluted, as poisonous, by comparison and this isn't because a a, a switch got flipped and I all of a sudden got smart enough to figure it out because I've been saved now for 30 years and and I still want to dabble in sin just a little bit I know y'all are shocked by that I'm sorry to let you know that I'm human but every once in a while I just want just a little sample just a little taste of what Jesus rescued me from I'm not smart enough to figure out that I need him. But when I finally let go of that garbage and follow him, it's because he has surrounded me with his goodness and he daily supports me with his love. He just holds me up. I love Psalm 68, 19. It says, blessed be the Lord who daily, how often? He daily bears us up. The King James, I love the way it says it. It says, he daily loadeth us with benefits. How many of you checked out your benefits package from the Lord Jesus recently? This is the very definition of overcoming grace. Many of you, uh, many of you saw the viral video. I think some of you even reshared it of Deanne Carson. She was the self-proclaimed sexuality expert in Australia who suggested that you should always obtain consent before you change your infant's nasty diaper. Make sure it's okay with them. So as not to make him feel violated. And like all of you did, I'm sure that you, as I did, laughed so hard that you could barely breathe when you saw this foolishness paraded as sound parenting advice. But when I picked myself up off the floor, it occurred to me that this is exactly how most of us were taught to come to belief in Christ. Think about it. In most, in the most popular version of the gospel taught today, Jesus finds us rolling around in our own filth and he gently asks us if we'd like him to help. Hey buddy, looking kind of nasty there. I don't want to impose. But if you'd like, I, maybe if it's okay with you, I can help out. Does Jesus have our consent to change our nasty, stinky, fully loaded diaper of sin and moral depravity? And the Jesus that we've been presented so often just sits there twiddling his thumbs, patiently humming a hymn, awaiting our permission to clean him, to clean us up. Okay, Jesus. I'm tired of walking around with 20 pounds around me. Go ahead. Can I tell you a life-changing secret? Everybody bend your ear in real close. I'm going to tell you a secret. Jesus does not need your permission. 
He does not look for your consent to clean you up. He is the one who leaves the 99 to save the one sheep, often against its will. Jesus, in Mark 13, 3.13, a verse we often overlook, says that he chose the disciples he wanted. If you are his disciple, it's not because you figured out you needed him, it's because he wanted you. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, calls us the captives of Christ. You are under arrest. Yet, even as his prisoners, even as his captives, Paul says he uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. And I guarantee you the aroma of Christ is so much better than the aroma I was carrying around in the diaper of sin. I promise you that. If you're a believer today, it's because it's not because, rather, that you consented and came to Jesus. It's because Jesus Christ destroyed your natural resistance by His love and He changed your desires so that you would love Him and choose life instead of continuing in the sin and the degradation that had absolutely destroyed you. Everything we are, everything we are, this is not a mutual agreement. We're not sharing things with Jesus. He does a little, we do a little. He does 90%, we do 10%, none of that. Everything we are in Him is because of Him. And because of His overcoming grace, we brought nothing to the table. And we never will. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Pay close attention. We're going to put this up on the screen for you to to the sections I've highlighted. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so so that through them you may watch become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now look closely at those four highlighted phrases. You don't have anything in you, inherent in you, that pertains to life and godliness. Nothing. But the Bible says that it has been granted to you. How? By overcoming grace. And you have these things not because you stumbled upon the glory and the excellence of Jesus, but because He called you there. How? By overcoming grace. You didn't earn precious and very great promises by any merit of your own. No, the Scripture says they were granted to you. How? I think you know the answer by now. By overcoming grace. You don't have an inherently divine nature, but His promises that have been granted to you have made you to become a partaker, not in a divine nature, but in His divine nature. How is this possible? By overcoming grace. So that what you are, you are because of Christ. 
Because, watch, he planned you. He planned to save you in particular by his grace. He resurrected you by his grace when you were in your sins and trespasses. When you were dead there. He displayed his the outrageous abundance of his grace when he saved you even though you were still a sinner. Romans 5.8 And now, <laughs> now we see that his grace even overcomes our most stubborn resistance. Mm. So now, as he is sanctifying us by his grace, and as we see ourselves looking more and more like him with each passing day, we realize this is good, that even our good works that should accompany our faith, even our good works are the result of all of this grace, this overcoming grace that's been poured out on us so liberally. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, how did they get there? Well, it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Overcoming grace. Now, as we do every week, we're going to make our way to the Lord's table. Uh, you, I've mentioned this a couple times, but we've decided to do this every week except in extreme circumstances where we wouldn't do it. And it's because this is the, the way that Christ himself has prescribed for us to remember what we so often forget. Anybody here guilty of forgetfulness of the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus? So this is what what the, the uh, Bible instructs us, what Jesus himself instructed us to do. And we do it for six, six distinct reasons. First, we come to the table for the perpetual memory of his dying for our sins and his pledge of undying love for us. We come as a bond of unity with him and with other members of his mystical body. We come as a seal of his promises, those very great and precious promises we just read about, and as a renewal of our obedience to him. We come for the blessed assurance of his presence with us who gather here together in his name. And we come as an opportunity for those of us who love the Savior to feed spiritually on him who is the bread of life. He said in John chapter 6 something that offended thousands He said, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the Jews, he said it to, were thinking, whoa, no, no, no cannibalism. But what he was saying is, he said earlier in that passage, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And so I want to invite you this morning to come and to feast on Jesus. And as you come... Those things that I told you earlier are general, but specifically this morning, I want you to come. Take a few seconds while you're seated there. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and just as you recognize where you were and how you got to this moment in your life, will you just take a moment and thank Him for His overcoming grace that never asked you for permission, didn't seek your consent, just reached out on on your own personal road to Damascus, knocked you down and made you His own. Just tell him, come on. We should have no problem with the words coming 
to thank Jesus for what he's done through, through the blood of, uh, uh, that was shed and the body that was broken on the cross. Just take a minute. Thank him. Some of you have been so busy with your lives, you may not have stopped to tell him thank you for saving you for a long time. Well, this is your moment to get reconnected to the purposes of Jesus in saving you. There are those of you in this room right now, I'm sure of it, who cannot confidently say that the grace of the Lord Jesus has overcome you yet. And so for your own sake, I want to ask you discreetly, we're not going to point you out, but don't come to this table this morning. This is a symbolic reminder to those of us who have already tasted the goodness of the Lord Jesus. If you have small children, obviously they probably shouldn't come until they've made a commitment to Jesus. But for those of you who have not yet been overcome by the grace of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is making you aware of that right now, this, the distinction is this. This is a feast to those of us who believe. And to those of you who do not yet believe, it will mean nothing more to you than just a snack of bread and grape juice. And let me tell you something. If that's all it is, you can get a much better snack after service. The Scripture warns us, in fact, in 1 Corinthians, that those of us who take this unworthily, that means without the elements of repentance and belief, do so to their own judgment. However, and folks, this is a big however, If this morning the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, we call that conviction. If he's been been knocking you down on your own personal road to Damascus, if you'd like to place all of your trust in Christ as your salvation, well, there's going to be myself and three other men that are going to be standing at these tables serving you the Lord's Supper. In fact, I want to invite those guys to go ahead and come forward. And, and, And I want you to get a good look at them. Especially if you need to to pledge your belief to Christ this morning. I want you to get a good look at these these guys myself. And I want you to promise that before this service is over, you're going to pull one of us four aside and say, I don't understand it, but this is my day. I've got to put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing would make our Sunday better than to pray with you for a few minutes and help you kind of get started on that. So don't leave without doing that. Don't say, I might have another Sunday. Listen, you don't know that you have another minute. I I, I know three people, three people this week alone that did not expect to be meeting God. Thank God all three of them were prepared to, but not one of them expected to. Who knows if it might not be you next. I'm not trying to be morbid and heavy-handed and hellfire and brimstone, but it's a fact. You don't know that you got five minutes. You can pull out on the walk and be smashed by a semi and be dead before you even get home. Consider that fact. So come talk to us. Nothing would delight us more. So would you stand with me? Paul says, For I received from the Lord... 
what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your body that was broken for us. God, the blood that was spilled for us that enabled us to be received by God as you came and knocked us down on our road to Damascus. God, you made us acceptable. And so, Lord, today we come to this table of feasting and we thank you for it, Lord God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that the scripture says that this is a pledge that you're coming again. And so, Lord, we are committed to remembering you around this table until the day you come. Father, I pray for those here whose hearts and consciences may be pricked this morning, Lord God. Lord Jesus, will you, by your Holy Spirit, on their road to Damascus, will you finish the work, Lord God? Call them into your kingdom. Bring them into your fold. Make them a part of the family of God. Lord Jesus, give them the courage to respond to your call right now to seek one of us out so that we might pray with them and get them started on a brand new life in you, Lord Jesus. Father, we just give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to the table.